we're back to his idea of Emperor Helios, a Helios Basileus. So the supreme god in his religious notions is the sun god Helios. And there are three manifestations of Helios in a three hypostases scheme. So first off, the one, okay, the Neoplatonic one, okay, beyond being the good, he calls the Helios Pam Basileus, okay, Helios the king of all, you know, the source of the intelligible world, okay, and the source of the intelligible gods, um, the source of the forms. So that is, at the first hypothesis, the Noetic realm, ta noeton, the intelligible world. Then the second hypothesis for him is, as opposed to the Noetic realm, the Noeton, is the Noeric realm, okay, to noeron, okay, the intellectual realm. And this is the realm of the active intellectual principles, the creative principles that connect the intelligible world to the interior world and the source of the intellectual gods of these creative principles, the nexus between the intelligible and the intellectual is what he calls Basileus Helius, Emperor Helius. And this is the equivalent of Zeus. It's the equivalent of Mithras and it's the equivalent of the Demiurge. This is the active, creative principle of the intelligibles okay, and the source of the intelligible gods. And so uh, the Olympian gods in this scheme are all come from uh, Helios, uh, such as Athena, for instance. He identifies Athena with the world soul, uh, Athena pronoia, okay, the providential world soul. And it is through, by way of Athena, that that King Helios is able to create the world. And finally, below the Helios below that is the visible sun. And the visible sun is ultimately the conduit through which the higher realities create the realm of becoming the material world. Um, the rays of the sun and light give the material world its form. Okay? It's the, the, the conduit of, you know, of logos right? And the world is the receptacle that receives the form. If you're thinking about the sun allegory of Plato, then that, that kind of organizes what's going on here. And this finally leads to the role of the Roman emperor, the Basileus ton roemaion, okay, is the viceroy of Basileus Helius, Emperor Helius. And so Julian and any Roman emperor function for subject to the Roman Empire, much as King Helios functions for, you know, for the cosmos. So that explains the kind of metaphysical significance of this dude, right? So he is connected to a chain, a Sera, that goes all the way up to the ultimate ground of being. He's really important, right? Really important. And because for Iamblichus and then for his follower Maximus of Ephesus, I mm-hmm. guess, ritual, religious ritual, what we would call, what, what a scholar of religion would call religious stroke, magical, ceremonial ritual, has kind of metaphysical effects in the higher worlds. 
his being the Pontifex Maximus, his doing massive sacrifices of a hundred bullocks at a time and stuff like this, is like setting the world to rights in a really fundamental kind of metaphysical way. It's like it's like doing a magic. He's doing magic to keep the, the universe running, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, the idea of theurgy as making oneself a receptacle of divine illumination, yeah. a uh, which you then pass on to the rest of the world. That is what theurgy does for Julian, and that's why he sees you know not just his own practice of theurgy, but that of the various high priests that he. Um, sees that are in charge of various provinces. And here we get into the idea of the so-called um, pagan counter-church, uh, as my mentor Jay Bregman would call it. You know, the idea that he, in some ways, imitated the ecclesiastical framework of Christianity as a way of having an infrastructure by which paganism can thrive yet again, Right. Um, well, and so he's, yeah. We have strong reasons for thinking he did this, right? Like in one of mm-hmm. his letters, he says he's to a priest, he's giving him advice and he's saying, well, like, you know, these Christians, when people, when people get sick with the plague, for example, they, they take care of them and they feed the poor. You need to do that too, because otherwise they're going to outcompete you. So there's this stuff that Christians are doing that we need to get on board with because otherwise we're going to lose out. So there is that counter christian thing going mm-hmm. on i don't know the degree to which you want to read everything julian does as a, a counter church mm-hmm. move is another question right what yeah you, and what's your take on it you know that's it's quite debatable what influence christianity had on julian you know how devout he was a christian before his conversion mm-hmm. you know it seems that he had a very deep knowledge of Christianity. So he quotes the Bible encyclopedically. So he really knows that. Some people say that, you know, his he's highly influenced specifically by Aryan Christianity as something that is compatible with kind of a, the subordination of the higher principles in Neoplatonism. Okay? Um, whereas, you know, Nicene the Nicene Trinity is, you know, a bit harder to <laughs> to mm. work that out with. But Arianism with the subordination of Christ and all of that, you know, made more probably made more sense to him. And also at this time, even this, you know, the Council of Nicaea be damned, Constantine's sons and successors were were Arians. Eh? They were yeah. so So the Council of um, Nicaea is deeply, deeply um fateful in retrospect. But in our period mm-hmm. in the fourth century, it was by no means clear that this was the final word on orthodoxy and stuff like this. Right. It's important and he, to keep that in mind. Right. And even Constantine himself, Constantine himself seems to have kind of, you know, departed from Nicaea, you know, I think under the influence of, you know, of Eusebius um, specifically. So Julian's approach to kind of organizing paganism, this diversity of cults into a single system with these high priests who, you know, ideally were theurgists themselves many pontifex pontifices maximi in their own provinces and the other thing to keep in mind is that he's not just looking at the christian church but he's also looking at the secular hierarchies too so this is and this is coming from diocletian where you know we have uh, a lot more provinces that are subdivided under both secular civilian 
hierarchies, governors, prefects, vicars, you know, that system, you know, dioceses, but also uh, military hierarchies as well. So he's basically saying, okay, let's just have another hierarchy like that um, in order to govern this kind of system and bring this kind of diversity together. And yes, um, he's also seeing Christianity as a competitor in the realm of what he calls philanthropia, charity or philanthropy or, you know, um, what he basically sees as, you know, one of the most important aspects of the gods is their blessings of humanity. And so he he's himself as the viceroy of Helios, so also are the various high priests, you know, conduits of those divine blessings, not merely in a mystical sense, but also in a practical sense through charity work by organizing poor relief, setting up hospitals and hospices and whatnot, stuff that, you know, for instance, Basil of uh, Caesarea was, was getting going, you know, around the same time for Christianity. Yeah, there's a few influences here. And I think Julian, you know, consciously or unconsciously was influenced by Christianity in this regard. Mm. Well, how could he not be? He was raised Christian, right? Yeah. We could talk more about how he deals with the Christians. I think that's a part here. Yeah. Um, because that was something that was kind of idiosyncratic as well. Um, because, yeah, he's not just reviving paganism in his own way and by the way the what his approach to paganism is not necessarily held by a lot of pagans you know definitely not definitely no like you know he and he understood that he knew that the laity would interpret religion in more traditional ways and interpret the myths you know more literally and stuff and then he thought that you know the intelligentsia the high priests you know the elite you know would have more philosophical interpretations of this but even his philosophical interpretation was a minority view you know even among neoplatonists uh you know for instance the story is that yes he was he came to a iamblichian school in pergamum under odysseus but then he heard about this guy maximus of ephesus down in ephesus who was making statues come to life and doing all of this you know showy flashy stuff and julian was like aha that's the guy I want to hang out with. So Julian was particularly, you know, interested in the the hieratic side of Neoplatonic philosophy rather than some of the more theoretical stuff. And Julian himself says that he is not a philosopher. Okay? So like, you know, some people, you know, trying you trying to be edgy will say, no, he's not Julian the apostate. Constantine is Constantine the apostate. Julian is Julian the philosopher. Uh, and he's the philosopher king of Plato's Republic and, uh, and all of that. And Julian never claimed to be that. But he's, also coming, he's also coming from a, a, a cultural milieu in which it's sort of definitional that if you are involved in public affairs or commerce, you are not a philosopher, not a true philosopher, mm -hmm. like especially in a Platonist context, you have to be above all that stuff, right? That's so right. You can't be a philosopher and be the right. emperor. Right. And his letter to Themistius um, kind of lays this all out very nicely. So Themistius, you know, is the Aristotelian philosopher who's also a court orator, you know, and senator in Constantinople. And he and his whole thing is that, you know, the emperor is the insoled 
nomos, okay, the uh, the logos empsuchos, okay, the uh, insult law. He is law himself, essentially, and he believes in the idea of philosopher kings. And so he sent a letter to Julian when he, you know, ex- became emperor and said, uh, "Hey, here's your chance to be the philosopher king." Um, you know, and Julian wrote back and saying, wait a minute, no, I am not that. How could I compare myself to, you know, Dionysus and Heracles? And I'm not even a philosopher. I'm a soldier. He says, I'm a statiotes, you know, because that is kind of the life that had been taking up his time, you know, for several years up to that point. And he says, I am merely an amateur. In other words, I'm an amateur, a, I, have, I am in love with philosophy. And I think that's one reason I relate to Julian personally is that, you know, I'm, I find a lot of the philosophy, you know, this, these philosophies difficult myself. And uh, so I see him as, you know, not, he's certainly not, he might have some idiosyncratic bits, but at least he claims that all of his ideas he's taken from Iamblichus or Seleustius. And of course, uh, you know, this is all in Plato you know, as he, as he are in our Aristotle, as he argues and the Stoics even. And in fact, he, he sort of syncretizes all the major schools, doesn't he? He says they all pretty much teach the same thing. The Hellenic wisdom. Except for Epicureanism, uh, which he basically says, you know, yeah, uh, Epicureanism is, I mean, he doesn't say it, but, you know, I would imagine he sees a lot in common between Epicureanism and Christianity. He also doesn't have a very sympathetic view to cynicism, right? at least the contemporary schools of cynicism. He sees them as these sort of, you know, hippies who just reject society and religion and, uh, and everything, and they're no different than the Christians in his mind. But, but, but then he says, uh, well, Diogenes and Crates, the founders of cynicism and Antisthenes, you know, they were actually God-fearing and very pious uh, people uh and you're not following their example right so he tries to he tries to to de-dropoutify the early cynics and yeah. then say that these later dropout culture cynics are are not true followers yeah. so he's he's basically you know if you can imagine diogenes the the original cynic face to face with um you know i mean if he told if he told alexander to fuck off you can bet he would certainly have no trouble <laughs> telling the emperor julian to fuck off as well yes Yes, indeed. Yeah. So Julian um, in the letter to Messiah says, okay, yeah, I'm not that. And, you know, the ideal philosopher is not someone who involves themselves in politics. Right. Hey, Socrates didn't. Hey, Plato didn't. Iamblichus didn't. The proper philosophical life is free of that. It's above that. Okay. And so my, my role is, yes, I follow the philosophers, but I'm not a philosopher king. Okay. I'm just a regular guy. Okay. I have a regular soul. Like I'm not a superior being in that chain of being. However, he doesn't say this in the letter, but he says in other things, Helios created me like he created any other soul and sent me with a specific purpose in mind, which was to restore the empire, much as my imperial predecessors had been tasked to do. So now let's get to how Julian dealt with the Christians and how he viewed the Christians in light of his religious, philosophical, political scheme. So he believed that Christianity was an attempt to secularize Greco-Roman culture 
he believed that Hellenism and Hellenic paideia, um, culture, education, literature, whatnot, was inextricable from religion. Homer, Plato, Thucydides, even playwrights, these were all religious texts. They were inspired by the gods and they talk about gods. And he saw the Christians as essentially corrupting that by teaching classical literature and approaching classical literature and appropriating classical or appropriating Greco-Roman culture as in purely secular terms. And this makes sense to him because he believes that they don't actually worship the gods or any god. They worship a corpse. Yeah, they worship a, crimi- a criminal who was executed by a Roman governor in a far-off province under in the reign of Tiberius. Hey, uh, and, and, and even worse, <laughs> a uh, an apostate Jew, right? So that's right. Someone who had yeah, he, an ancient tradition that really did connect with yeah. the gods and rejected it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he makes a big point of that uh, of how you know the Christians, you know, repudiated their their Jewish roots, you know, because he saw the Jews as much like he saw other peoples in the empire, you know, they had their ethnic God who who was much more of a local God, even though they might claim that he was the creator. And he makes, you know, he talks about that, but ultimately, you know, these are, these are the Yahwehists. He didn't, doesn't use that word, but that's essentially how he would say it. And then he said, the Christians are not, are not that they are Galileans. That's the word he uses for them because their ethnic God is Jesus of Galilee, who's dead. And so there's nothing divine in their in their theology, really. So he believed that, you know, Christianity was really a form of mental disorder because he believed that, and this goes back to page one of Iamblichus's De Mysteries, that we in our souls are nat- have a natural gnosis knowledge of the gods' existence. And we have a natural tendency to worship them. And and Julian mentions this. And so he sees the Christians as somehow not acting on this natural impulse. And so he says, well, they must be mentally sick, therefore, um, because they're atheists in his mind. Yeah. So so how does he deal with the Christians? Um, Well, through toleration. Through toleration. That's right. He realizes that, you know, Diocletian and Decius and Valerian and other emperors who attempted to persecute violently the Christians did not succeed. You know, as Tertullian said, you know, the blood of Christians is seed. He realized this is going to be counterproductive. He doesn't want to create martyrs, okay, because martyrs, you know, serve to inspire more than anything. He recognizes this. And so he says, I am not a persecutor. I'm a doctor. And Julian is highly influenced by medicine and how medicine and philosophy are, you know, two sides of the same coin. And he says, I am going to cure this mental illness through recommending treatment uh, and through persuasion. Okay. The pen is mightier than the sword, according to him. And so that's why he, through his writings, he, you know, argues, you know, why Christianity is misguided. Um, and here is why, and that's why he's trying to kind of put, you know, polytheistic religions on a, you know, on a philosophical foundation here. 
So he says, okay, yes, we'll tolerate the Christians, or we're not going to persecute you. We're not going to give you any privileges anymore. As I mentioned before, you know, he revokes all those privileges and stuff. You know, he's not even kicking Christians out of high positions. So for instance, you know, his, he kept on the imperial physician Caesarius, you know, at his post because he was doing a fine job, even though he was Christian. He didn't kick Christians out of the army or any of that. The one thing that he kicked Christians out of was the education system. And this goes back to the idea of their secularizing approach to Paideia. Right. Uh, he believed that teaching one thing and believing another was dishonest. It was hypocrisy. Eh? So um, somebody who doesn't believe in the gods that inspired Homer shouldn't be teaching Homer. You know, go off and teach the Gospels eh, in your own, in your churches. Um, that's fine. That's consistent. But... He basically passed a law that we still have in the Theodosian Code, uh, basically saying that the state must approve teachers because the state subsidizes um, teachers. You know, there's various chairs of rhetoric uh, in various cities, for instance. And basically, he uses that law as a way to basically say Christians cannot be, cannot teach the classics. They can't be classics professors. And this was, of course, a way to also, you know, change the education system so that, you know, younger, younger people aren't being taught by Christians and influenced by Christians to become Christian. Uh, It's also going to keep Christians from knowing rhetoric, which is a key Mm -hmm. political tool, right? So exactly. If you you don't know proper rhetoric, you're just never going to get anywhere in politics, which means you're not going to be in politics. Exactly. Politics, law, etc. Uh, yeah, Paideia is the ticket to the establishment to the civil service that, you know, grew up in this post-Diocletianic system. Okay, that's a very important point. Thank you. So he has this reputation of, at least among historians now, that he was not a persecutor. Um, and so his approach was, I'm not only going to tolerate Christianity, I'm going to tolerate all flavors of Christianity, yeah. which means I am going to recall from exile all of the bishops that were declared heretics, and then they will sort out their differences and, you know, devour themselves from within yeah which is which is a very acute observation actually (laughs) you know what i mean it's it's a bit like the um you know if you're like a modern day intelligence service or something and you've got a bunch of subversive left or right-wing extremist factions like in most cases the best thing you can do is just let them squabble yeah because they're just going to inevitably splinter off and and uh, and break up into little useless fragments that can't achieve anything yeah one of my favorite, uh, you know, modern paintings of Julian is, uh, I think it's called Julian the Sectarians. Uh, I don't remember the the painter, but he's basically sitting at a table, you know, just just sitting back and watching these various bishops just argue with each other. <laughs> like, yeah, sort this out. Have fun with that. Yeah. Um, there are Christian, later Christian traditions that he did undertake persecutions or at least, you know, executed various people, um, martyred various people. But um, as scholars like Candida Moss uh, and and others have shown that a lot of these martyr narratives are, you know, are made up. Well, going all the way back to Gibbon, I think that's one of the reasons Gibbon blew everyone's mind in Decline and Fall is he said, well, I've had a look through this this, um, 
kind of late antique and medieval martyrdom literature. And yeah, I don't think it was really, mm-hmm. really as bad as it was made up. Yeah. To be. Yeah. The closest he comes to anything like that is early on, shortly after his accession, some zealous pagan groups in Alexandria, um, you know, were emboldened by, you know, that one of their own was back in charge. uh, And they were emboldened to lynch a bishop uh, named George in Alexandria. And Julian wrote a letter to the Alexandrians in response to this and basically gave them a tongue lashing, a slap on the wrist, but didn't really punish them for, you know, this murder and... So that's sort of, so him kind of looking the other way or, you know, a token kind of slap on the wrist to some of this anti-Christian violence was kind of the, as far as he went in terms of, you know, any sort of violent policy toward the Christians, as far as, at least based on the evidence that we can, that it is reliable. And so this tolerance may in fact have been the reason that upon his death, um, in 363 in Persia uh, in May, that basically the Roman Empire went back to, went back on its way to becoming a Christian empire is because there were still plenty of Christians in the army and the administration. And so, for instance, the army elected Jovian, who was, you know, an army officer, and he was Christian. And so they just went back to, picked up where they left off before Julian. Although with a lot of heat between Arians and so-called Orthodox to come. Right. So that, that uh, wasn't yeah. over. And maybe he had something to do with that because he was like, Arians, yeah, you're fine. It's cool. Be Arian. Yeah. Yeah. And of course that will, you know, continue, um, you know, where we have the the Valentinian dynasty and then the Theodosian dynasty comes in. But ultimately Theodosius, you know, wins out with the Nicene interpretation uh, to the point where we get to 381 with the edict of Thessalonica basically saying you know if you're not Catholic if you don't believe the things the Pope believes uh, you are quote demented and insane which is very interesting that's the same language Julian uses to refer to Christians in general as you have a mental illness as if Nicene Christianity is the most lo- is the most logical and reasonable way to think as much as Julian thought that his version of religion was, you know, based on, you know, the most rational principles. <laughs> so mm. it's it's very interesting how this rhetoric is used by various groups to characterize their their opponents. Jeremy, thank you so much. That I think you've painted a really, really informative and quite important and quite, you know, sort of factual picture of Julian's reign and some of the ideas behind what he was doing. But before I let you go, I'd love to ask you one extremely irresponsible question because I can't resist and it's such a, a good question so I'm, I'm bracketing this at the get-go this is irresponsible this is not falling into the realm of competent historical analysis this is just for out of interest Julian goes in 363 to fight the Persians which has been a, a big uh, it's been a, a major part of the job description of being a Roman emperor for a while now but he doesn't die He's victorious, he manages to stabilize the frontier, and he goes on to reign for the next 40 years where he dies of a ripe old age. What does the world look like in that scenario? 
Um, so I understand why you asked that this is irresponsible because this is what's called contrafactual history. Yes. Uh, and therefore it's not history uh, at all. Um, you know, there are some fun books out there where historians are paid money to write, you know, what if Adrian Opal was a victory um, or, you know, what if, uh, you know, Gore became president and 9-11 happened. So, yes, the perennial question of what if Julian lived if it's so per, first, if it's a perennial question, it must be a good question, yeah. a question worth asking. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, one of those what ifs of history. Um, so, uh, I tend not to think about it just because it's you know there's so many different factors, you know, and possibilities that things that could have happened that could have changed the courses of events. So, first off, you know, when Julian died in Persia, the campaign was already kind of a disaster. He got as far as the Persian capital of Tessaphon. He laid siege to it, but was not able to break in. And it ended up being just a, a waste of resources. But that's um, that's kind of par for the course when you're invading Parthia. Like that, yeah. loads of emperors have gone there, tried to fight, got their asses yeah. kicked, came back home. It didn't destroy the empire or anything. It was you know. Right. Yeah, it was, it was probably a fiasco in general. But And what happened was, is during the retreat, the army was ambushed by a surprise Parthi- uh, Persian attack. And Julian rode out in his without his armor on because he, you know, wanted to rally the troops as quickly as possible um, and ended up getting a spear to the liver and then, you know, dies in his tent shortly thereafter, after having a very Fido-like, you know, conversation with his inner circle, right? Anyway, so yeah, if he lived and made it back to made it back to Antioch and to, and to the empire, you know, he probably would have had propaganda saying it was a success because the reason, one reason he undertook the campaign besides the fact that he was basically picking up what Constantius II had dropped in order to face Julian in civil war before he died. Uh, but he also saw himself as emulating Alexander in certain respects. Uh, he thought that, you know, this was the mark of a great Roman emperor was to, have this great Eastern campaign where if you didn't conquer Persia, you at least, you know, imposed your will. So he probably would have made the most of that. In terms of, yeah, what if he had a long reign, you know, and continued these policies? That's a great question, how successful his religious reforms would have been, how much they would have stuck, and whether Christianity would have, you know, probably not died out, but, you know, just became, you know, another one of these cults, like the cult of Mithras um, and others, Manichaeism and all that just sort of coexisted. You know, I think about, there was already this tendency toward not just monotheism, but also monotheism being part of the state, right? you know, one church, one empire, type of, of stuff, that's what they were sort of moving toward at this period. Um, I'm not sure if under Julian it would have achieved that. That's just hard to guess. Also, another way Julian was sort of emulating the five good emperors of the second century was um, Julian did not have children. He had a, a child who was either stillborn or died in child or died in childbirth because his uh, wife, Helena, died in childbirth. 
But I think what happened after that is he essentially, you know, became uh, swore swore celibacy because he didn't remarry um, after Helena died. So it's quite possible that he would have adopted a successor, much as you know, Nerva, Trajan, Hadrian, Antoninus Pius did. And that's is something where he would not have emulated Marcus Aurelius. And this is actually his one of his criticisms that he makes of Marcus Aurelius in the Caesars is you let uh, your you let son your you charge. let your own son succeed you. A you know that was a bad call. And Marcus defends himself as being say, as saying you know well this is just what's natural for a parent to do. So uh, which was probably you know the case in reality like. Uh, the adoptive principle of succession was not a conscious policy in the second century. It was, in fact, it was just luck. Nerva didn't have children. Trajan didn't have children. Hadrian didn't have children. Antonius Pius didn't have a son, partly because Hadrian certainly, but even Trajan possibly were, you know, not not almost, so interested almost, in not so interested in women. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's say. So yeah, Julian might have adopted a successor and who would continue his policies. But ultimately, there's just too much speculation. It's not something I'm trained to, to do, to predict to predict an alternative future like that. So I'm sorry that I don't have like a satisfactory answer no, on that's what good. would it, happen because, because, you know, yeah, there might have been usurpers, perhaps, you know, the Christians might have organized some sort of resistance at some point. But... No, it's just not my instinct to engage <laughs> to engage with those questions, you know. Cool. However, you know, however fascinating and interesting a question it is. All so right, then. I think I'll just leave it at that and not ramble any further. <laughs> well, Jeremy Swist, it's been a, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for informing us about the, the whole political side of um, Julian's reign and stay esoteric. Thank you. You have a good one. <laughs>